Good morning. My name's Danny. We're going to read Matthew chapter 26 together. You'll be able to find Matthew chapter 26 on page 996 of this Bible. If you don't have one, please raise your hand and pull there and someone on this side will give you a Bible. That would be great. Matthew chapter 26 and we're going to start reading at verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. And began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word read to us. We would ask that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. Amen. We all like to feel prepared, don't we? We don't like shocks. We like to plan. We like to know what's coming. 
that might be why we have 13 different weekly planners, schedules, lists and organisers on our fridge door. We're very much not an electronic diary type of family. We're a fridge door type of family. And contrary to what you might think, they're not all Sarah's. Only 12 of them are. We all want to be prepared. And when we're not prepared, whether it's like something that hit us this week with what's been in the news, or something personal that hits us like a bolt from the blue, maybe a diagnosis that we weren't expecting, or a relationship ending when we thought it was going quite well, or a redundancy when our last annual review seemed totally fine. When we're not prepared for something like that, it can feel like we're all at sea, just minuscule in the storms of life, bobbing about being tossed to and fro with no point of reference on the horizon, never mind an anchor. Well, this passage is all about preparation for times like that. At first glance, it might look like the disciples are the ones doing the preparation. After all, in verse 17, they come to Jesus, and they seem to be the ones taking the initiative. It's the day before the Passover meal, and Jesus clearly hasn't made them aware of any plans, and they're getting a little bit twitchy. It's a bit like if you were to turn up at your mum's on Christmas Eve, and as you open the door, you realise that there are no decorations anywhere. You can't see the twinkle of Christmas lights. And of course, the first place you go to check your suspicions is the fridge. And when you open it, it's bare. Mum, (laughs) you do remember what's happening tomorrow, don't you? Well, the reality here is that Jesus has already prepared for the Passover. He has a venue booked He tells the disciples to go into Jerusalem and to find a particular man. We're not given his name, but he sends them to a specific person. And they're to pass on this message from Jesus. You can see it in verse 18. My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Jesus is sure of what's going to happen. The disciples didn't need to worry. Jesus has everything prepared already. These first three verses of this passage are just a microcosm of what's going to happen over the next ten verses. And they show us what's going to happen over the next couple of chapters. In these verses 17 to 19, Jesus prepares the disciples for the Passover. He prepares the Passover for his disciples. They might doubt him, but Jesus is in control. In the next few days, his disciples are going to go through the mill. Their leader, Jesus, the one who they hoped would be the Messiah, is going to be betrayed and arrested, and he's going to stand trial at a kangaroo court, and he's going to be sentenced And he's going to be executed. And they don't have any idea that any of that is about to happen. But Jesus does. And he prepares them. 
in these next 10 verses for what is about to happen. So firstly, Jesus prepares his disciples for his betrayal. In the middle of this intimate Passover meal, Jesus drops a bombshell for his disciples. See it in verse 20? When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell of you, one of you will betray me. It's literally in the middle of the meal. It's like waiting until granny and granddad's 60th wedding anniversary to tell them that the business that they built up from nothing is about to go bankrupt. I mean, there's a time and a place, but is this it? We already know, of course. In the theatrical world, it's called dramatic irony, where someone in the audience knows something that the characters don't. We as readers can already see an impending disaster. We saw it last week in chapter 26, verse 14. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. In fact, the very first time that Matthew introduces Judas in this whole gospel, back in chapter 10, when he lists all of the disciples, Matthew identifies him as Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's never been a secret to the reader But the disciples have no idea. And they are devastated. Verse 22, very sad, is an understatement. They were grieved, horrified. One old translation says, exceedingly sorrowful. This is news to them, dreadful news. They don't expect it at all. Notice that what they don't do is glance at Judas out of the corner of their eye. He's not a suspect. In fact, each disciple actually questions whether it's them who are going to betray Jesus. Verse 22, they say, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. It's clear that the question they ask expects a negative response, but they aren't pointing fingers at anyone else. It's so unbelievable that anyone within this band of followers would betray their leader. And Jesus replies in verse 23, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. What we are meant to understand is that they've all been dipping their hand into the bowl with him. It's a meal, a feast, there's a dip in the middle of the table for the bread. Jesus' point here is that yes, it will be one of you, one of my disciples, who will betray me. And as Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for his betrayal, he shows them that he's fully in control. Let me read verse 24. Please look at it with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This verse is showing a contrast. Jesus is saying, on the one hand, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. This has been foretold. This is simply a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is already prepared. We saw that last week, didn't we? In verse 2, the plans of God. Jesus says, I know I will be betrayed. It's God's plan. But, but on the other hand, 
while God is sovereign, that doesn't diminish the human responsibility of the one who will betray Jesus. He is responsible for his actions. And for him, because he will go on to betray Jesus, it would be better if he had not been born. At this point, Judas joins in with the rest of the disciples. He doesn't want to feel left out. Matthew tells us in verse 25, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, just to be clear, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Do you notice the subtle difference between the question that the disciples asked and what Judas asked? The disciples call Jesus Lord. And Judas calls him rabbi, teacher. Throughout Matthew's gospel, nobody who is a follower of Jesus calls him rabbi. Only people who are outside of the group. This is another more subtle hint that Judas is actually no longer a disciple. He is not a true follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, you have said so, making sure that the other disciples don't understand fully so that Judas can carry out his betrayal and God's sovereign plan can be fulfilled. This betrayal will happen in verse 47. We'll come on to that in the next couple of weeks. The disciples are going to be even more distraught then than they are here at this table. But here Jesus graciously prepares them beforehand for the fact that he will be betrayed. It's worth pausing for just a moment to think about Judas. His name has become synonymous with treachery, hasn't it? I've tried to think this week and I can't think of many things I would less like to be called than a Judas. But here at this meal... Judas was just Judas, the disciple. Nobody thought it was him. He had spent time with Jesus. He'd been taught by Jesus. He'd seen Jesus' miracles and his great power. He'd been sent out by Jesus on a preaching and healing tour along with the rest of the disciples. He looked like a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He fooled true disciples of the Lord Jesus. But yet he wasn't a disciple of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus says that it would be better for him if he had not been born, it's a sobering judgment. And it's a warning to us too. Because Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, will meet the same end as anybody who rejects Jesus. Whether or not they look like a disciple, the only thing that will matter is if they are a true disciple. Secondly, Jesus prepares his disciples for his death. Of course, his betrayal wasn't the end of the matter. It's not the main thing they had to be prepared for. There was worse to come. And Jesus prepares them for it all. He's already prepared them. We've seen it earlier back in chapter 26, verse 2. He had done three times previously in the gospel. 
But here, Jesus prepares his disciples for his death, firstly by reinterpreting the Passover meal. We've got this far through the passage, and we haven't really talked about Passover. So it's important that we take a moment to do that. They celebrated that night, as we've already heard, to remember the exodus. That The Passover is still celebrated in Judaism. They remember the night that the Lord rescued them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, when they went from being captives to being free. It was the night that the Lord sent the tenth and final plague on Egypt and killed the firstborn son of every Egyptian as a judgment for Pharaoh's rebellion against him. That night, each Israelite had to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without a blemish, without a spot, and they had to kill it and catch the blood. And then they were to take that blood and they were to daub it on the door frame of their front door. And then they had to roast the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs and bread without yeast in it, unleavened bread. It doesn't quite sound like your normal Sunday roast, does it? But as the Lord passed through Egypt that night, when he came to the houses of the Israelites and he saw that blood on their door frame, Instead of killing the firstborn in that house, he would would pass over it. That's why it became known as the Passover. Every house in Egypt that night was touched by death. Either the death of the firstborn son or the death of the lamb instead of the firstborn son. And that night, Pharaoh let the people go. But it was God who freed them. That's the Exodus. And God had commanded them to annually reenact this night as a reminder of their rescue from Egypt. So the disciples and Jesus are together eating this annual remembrance meal. And Jesus reinterprets everything that's going on. Let me read from verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. It's really difficult for us to comprehend just the magnitude of what's going on here. During this key act, of Jewish remembrance. Remembering the standout rescue story from their nation's history, Jesus says, actually, this is now all about me. It would be a little bit like someone standing up on Remembrance Sunday and reciting Binion's famous poem for the fallen, where he beautifully remembers those who died for us in battle. And them saying, they shall grow not old, as we who are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, you will remember me. That would be unthinkable. The poem's obviously not about that. We will remember them. But this is exactly what Jesus does. 
he reinterprets the Passover meal. And he says that it's now about remembering him. The bread now represents Jesus' body. The wine now represents Jesus' blood. The individual elements of the Passover meal used to represent different parts of the Exodus story. But Jesus here institutes a new feast. At the Last Supper, Jesus gives his disciples the Lord's Supper, where we are to remember not the Exodus, but Jesus' death, the true and full Exodus. And as Jesus does this, in verse 28, Jesus explains the benefits of his death. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here in these few words, Jesus explains to his disciples why he is going to die, what his death will achieve, and what benefits it will bring. And in these words, Jesus is drawing on a wide range of Old Testament passages that would have instantly come to mind for those who heard it here first. The first one is back in the book of Exodus. After the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, they journeyed on to Sinai, and there God made a covenant with them. A covenant is a legal bond, a promise And at Sinai, God made a covenant with the Israelites. He said that if they obeyed him fully and kept that covenant, then they would be his people, his treasured possession, and that he would be their God. They say that they will obey everything that the Lord has said. No wonder, it sounds like a pretty great deal. And to confirm that covenant, to ratify it, Moses took the blood from bulls that had been slaughtered, and he he sprinkled it on all the people. And as he did it, he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. It was like the signature on the bottom of a contract. That's the moment with the sprinkling of that blood at which the covenant relationship between the Lord and the Israelites is sealed. But here, Jesus, bringing that passage to mind, says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's explaining to them that his death is going to bring about a new covenant. They'll no longer be living under the old covenant where they had to obey God fully. And when they failed, they had to repeatedly bring animal sacrifices as an atonement for their sins. No, what Jesus is about to do is going to bring about something new by his blood. And by stating that his blood is poured out for many, Jesus is showing that the the old covenant community, that single nation of Israel, would be broadened out and that the new covenant community would include both more people and that it wouldn't be specifically linked to one nation or one type of person, but that it would be for many people from many places and at many times. 
And Jesus also says that his death is for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew's gospel, it's been clear right from the very start that that is what Jesus will do. You'll know the well-known Christmas reading in Matthew chapter 1. When the angel appears to Joseph, Joseph's told, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew is stressed that that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus' death will deal with the sins of the people in a way that the old covenant never could. Their sins can be forgiven once and for all. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this whole idea of those few words is summed up in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one of the other main passages that Jesus is alluding to here. It's a key passage in Scripture. If you want to turn to it, that would be great. It's on page 794, Jeremiah 31. The words will come up behind me on the screen too. This is a prophecy written 550 years before Jesus was born. Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. These prophetic words from Jeremiah, which Jesus alludes to at the Last Supper, were fulfilled through the work of Christ on the cross. His death created a new covenant community filled with diverse people whose sins have been forgiven. And the basis of this new community and the forgiveness of their sins is in his substitutionary death. And finally, Jesus explains the hope that his disciples have for the future in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus promises that they have a future hope. The idea of the kingdom of heaven has been building throughout Matthew's gospel. Many other New Testament writers talk about the kingdom of God, but but Matthew focuses on the kingdom of heaven, which has started with Jesus' earthly ministry, but has an eternal future aspect to it. Jesus tells his disciples here that after this meal, 
he will not feast with them again until a future day, but that he will eat with them again. It's a pointer to the future hope they have because of his death. And it's the opposite of the tragic judgment given to Judas. And at the end of this passage in verse 30, the disciples with Jesus sang a hymn together. And they go out to the Mount of Olives, the place where the next part of this passion narrative takes place. But but as they leave that room, Jesus has prepared his disciples for the situation that they're about to find themselves in. They've been assured that Jesus is totally in control. He knows what's about to happen. And they've been prepared for his betrayal as well as his death. And Jesus has reinterpreted this Passover meal for them and showed them both the benefits of his death and the future hope that they have. One writer says that in this passage, Jesus gives his disciples the resources they need to enable them to survive the crisis ahead. And so this passage gives us the same resources. We're on the other side of the events that Jesus was preparing them for. We know the end of the story. So we can say that I don't know what situation you find yourself in this morning. Maybe even this week, something has totally knocked you for six. Something that you are totally unprepared for. But here, Jesus points us to his death on the cross as the place where we can find the resources to get through whatever situation we're facing. The place where we can enter into new covenant relationship with God. The place where we can find forgiveness for our sins. The place where we can be joined together with a new covenant community. And the place where we can look forward to a future in the kingdom of heaven. That place is the cross of Christ. The institution that Jesus has graciously given us to remember his death is the Lord's Supper. We can only come to it if we have first come to the cross. But it is the remembrance meal that Jesus has given to us. And this passage shows us just the great riches of the Lord's table. At this table we can look in at least three different directions. Backwards, around, and forwards. At the Lord's table we look back. We look back to the historical event of the Lord Jesus dying a substitutionary death for us as the true Passover lamb. Coming to him by faith and having our sins forgiven, we enter into a new covenant relationship with God. He is our God and we are his people. And at the cross, our justified status was secured. That never changes throughout the ups and the downs of life. That is secure, which is good news.
But at the Lord's table, we, we also look around. Now, I'm running the risk of getting a reputation at asking people to look around in church. But the reason why we sometimes call this communion is because the Lord's table is not primarily about the individual believer, but about the cross bringing together the many and winning a new covenant community who who look a little bit like this. The only thing that unites this diverse group of people here this morning is what this table represents, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And as we look around, we see that God has given us each other to bear one another's burdens and to love one another and to pray for one another and to offer hospitality to one another and all of the other one another's that the New Testament commands. We are a resource for each other in life's trials and this table reminds us of that. And at the Lord's table, we also look forwards. There are to be a variety of emotions at this table, not just a single one. It's solemn, but it's not sad. It's joyous, but it's not jovial. But one thing we're sadly at risk of never feeling is that it is a celebration. This passage that we've looked at this morning is known as the Last Supper the last meal that Jesus ate before he died. But this passage tells us that even as this was the Lord's last supper, so too one day there will be a last Lord's supper. We won't eat this meal forever. We won't eat it in the future. No, we're going to be sitting at another table eating the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the hope that we have for the future is a resource for those times right now when we feel totally unprepared for what's come to us. I've been chatting to a few people this week about what they think of the Lord's Supper. I asked one person, do you enjoy the Lord's Supper? They sat for a moment and they did think hard and they said this, well, I wouldn't say I dread it but I don't enjoy it. And that has certainly been true of me many times. I don't, I don't dread it, damn by faint praise, but I don't enjoy it. And I think that we can undervalue the Lord's Supper terribly. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, but we shouldn't. We should enjoy it tremendously. It's not just an extra 15 minutes at the end of the service. There are... There are spiritual benefits to be gained at this table. The Lord nourishes and feeds us here. Jesus has given us this table to remember. And we can look back and look around and look forward. And at those times when we feel all at sea, this can be an anchor for our soul. Because we can come to this table and primarily be reminded of what Christ has already done for us. But also of the new covenant community that he has brought us into by his blood. And the future hope 
that we have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the graciousness of the Lord Jesus, for the way in which he prepared his disciples before what he himself was going to go through. We thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing and obedient and that as the true Passover lamb, he was slaughtered and his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. May Christ be lifted high even now in our minds. May we look to him. And Father, as we come now to remember, we thank you for your graciousness to us. As you know, we are prone to forget. Father, help us this morning to look backwards and around and forwards and to enjoy this gracious gift that you have given us. Feed us and nourish us spiritually at this table, we ask. Amen.